92nd Street Y Online Media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. This program features playwright August Wilson celebrating the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. It was recorded on January 21st, 1991, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Today is January 21st, 1981, and I am at the Poetry Center at the 92nd Street Y. Today is the day that America honors one of its finer citizens, Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a man of dignity and courage who challenged America on a moral battlefield and urged it to live up to the meaning of his creed and the principles of the Founding Fathers that all Americans might live in the pursuit of the ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Martin Luther King's challenge to America's character has not been met. In 1991, the struggle of black Americans for full participation in a society that takes advantage of all of its human potential continues unabated. We affirm our moral competence and our inalienable right to our liberty and our right to a meaningful and fruitful life unencumbered by any restraints on our moral and political personalities. I would be remiss if I did not this day, at this point in world history, use this occasion to remark and remind that the man we honor today, Martin Luther King Jr., dedicated his life to the solving of human problems and conflict through the peaceful means of nonviolence. I would hate to think that the new world order that we are proposed to bring about through violence and war in the Middle East is a signal that violence would be a sanctioned way for you and I to solve our differences with our brothers and our neighbors. I would rather hope that the biblical admonition, lie shall not kill, and the Muslim teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad to want for your brother what you want for yourself would be the starting point to the solution of our present and future disputes. And to ensure that we have a future, we must stop now while we still can this dangerous, insane, and pointless war in the Persian Gulf. Today is January 21st, 1991, and I am at the Poetry Center at the 92nd Street Y. This is my second time that I have stood here on this platform under these hallowed auspices, and it is no less meaningful than the first. October of 1986, I stood here coming from so long ago, coming from 952 Crawford Street, where as a 20-year-old poet, 
I lived next door to the painter Barbara Peterson, and the days and nights were filled with Dylan Thomas, Conrad Aiken, Wallace Stevens, John Berryman, Hart Crane, and Leroy Jones. Those days and nights when in the full blaze of your youth you stood at the center of a vast and encompassing universe and armed and armored with your kinship with the gods imagined that all things were possible and that you could enter a room and confront faultless terror and have it cower. Those days and nights filled with poetry and art and spent in the company of Barbara Peterson and Charlie Williams and Nick Flannoy, Rob Penny, Carl Smith and Cy Morocco. Those days and nights long before I could imagine that I would one day have a daughter who will be 21 years old tomorrow. Those days and nights I stood on the corner of Center Avenue and Crawford Street in Pittsburgh and with the arrogance of youth and faith in one's talent imagined that I would one day stand on the platform of the Poetry Center at the 92nd Street Y. <laughs> Today, January 21st, 1991, Barbara Peterson, Carl Smith, and Cy Morocco were dead these many years, and I stand here for the second time. I am standing here in my grandfather's shoes. And although I have been invited here to read for my plays, I cannot allow this occasion to pass without reading with your permission, a few poems. My face in a mirror, the buttons on my coat, the coin in my pocket, these are my compatriots. My compatriots and I ask for your attention. We are going to begin now. I'd like to read a poem, since I'm standing in my grandfather's shoes, I'd like to read a poem I wrote for my grandfather's called The Founding of the Republic. His chest stripped open to reveal a raven, huge with sharp talons, a song stuck in his throat. And beneath the feathers, beneath the shudder and rage, the pages of a book closed, and the raven took flight. Raven-hearted Bynum Cutler, savage, mule trainer, farmer, singer, shaper of wood and iron, Bynum Cutler, who spread his seed over the nine counties in North Carolina, seed carried by the wind in the sills of ships and planted among the canebrake, among Georgia pine, among bowls of cotton, planted in the fertile fields of women who snapped open like fresh berries, like cities in full season, welcoming as architects and ennobling them with gifts of blood. And come now, to this hand I place in yours, this hand welded by mock faith and love to the stripping away layer by layer the manners and makings of a man who one day closed as a book, an atlas of muted geography, leaving behind the makings of his heart, the language and fruits of his penis, and a grandson who is walking toward you in his shoes. is a poem called Paloma. I called her Paloma. I called her many things. And some were lost between us in the dark as our flesh pressed together, woven like two strands of many stories. 
In the dark, groping for her name, for what she was to me, all the many things came simply into the sound of Paloma. What was lost between us I knew was important to the thing we had become, and losing them was part of the language that escaped scrutiny. In more than a lost vow or dropped consonant, the things I called there were scouts that had lost their way when the stars confounded them with new constellations, messengers of great tiding who had become mute with the complexities of their verbs and their tongues stiffened like wood. And still I called her many things, and most of them were women. Sometimes I whispered them in her ear as sleep, a blessed sleep, found and fondled us. In her arms I found peace even as I girded for war. So I said, Paloma said, the pearl of the wilderness we traverse, imagining a continent without art, awakening to the blood coursing through her veins, and her heart a huge muscle singing arias. I touched her and I knew I'd awakened too, and I looked at her, her face profiled on the pillow, her hair billowing out like the call of a ship whose sailors had jumped overboard, lured by the siren call of mermaids, and I wanted to say it and not have it be lost between us. I wanted to say mermaid, meaning different worlds in which fate had locked us, but I didn't know the word for it, so I said, Paloma, tu eres mi Paloma. And having said it, knowing the power of language, I marveled at her wings in the great, vast, and beckoning sky. A poem called Mercedes. Behind the voice lurking, beyond what is clear as ice, is the woman thing Baraka speaks of. For years I had labored in a vineyard, a servant to food and shelter, hands cutting and pruning, planting, pressing out of the heart of the grape, meshing and coaxing to wine the fruits of my labor. I labored in joy and sorrow, a sweet mix born of such bounty as the vines blossoming under my hands in the cruelty of the taskmasters calling the barrels to the cellar and my parched lips sealed with blisters, embracing only to the touch of cool water. The woman thing, the way it fell on me. I heard of the wedding feast in Canaan and set out immediately, failed, misread the directions, and arrived without an invitation when the barrels were empty and the wedding guests were fat and drunk with sleep and boorish and their privilege. I'm trying to tell you this and don't want to remember parts of the story. The barrels were empty. I arrived late. The fruits of my labor and my voice escaped me. Then I came across the desert, mute, Walking upright, I came to Samaria and sat by the deserted well. I began to sing to amuse myself and lift the agony of the days and the cold nights desolate falling on one another like pages in a book. I won't say the rest. I will say only that she came walking out of the desert, a vessel made of clay, the sweet earth of the vineyard, molded by lights, shaped by the thought and presence of something infinitely larger than the moment that had been so long in coming, and having such beauty that the sheer weight of her billowing dress, its hot tempers, pressed in on me, and I grabbed and held into morning's light. That's one way of saying it. There are others that will be left to another time. 
I won't say she was a member of the wedding party who remembered the trick of the magician made by blind illusion and a slight hand and changing wind. I won't say that. I know only when I drank the water was wine and I heard angels. And now when I hear Mercedes Sosa singing, listening now, this moment more solitary than most, this poem made in the pain of the woman's absence, that voice sailing across the floor of heaven falls in on me and I understand finally the meaning of the Last Supper, how there is a house with many mansions and the tables are set with the fruits of our labor and each cup of wine turns into love that burns like powdered glass in the blood. Thank you. I will uh, proceed now with something uh, a little bit more familiar. I'm going to read uh, from my play, Fences. I will start with the front piece of the play. Near the turn of the century, the destitute of Europe sprang on the city with tenacious claws and an honest and solid dream. The city devoured them. They swelled this belly until it burst into a thousand furnaces and sewing machines, a thousand butcher shops and baker's ovens, a thousand churches and hospitals and funeral parlors and money lenders. The city grew. It nourished itself and offered each man a partnership limited only by his talent, his guile, and his willingness and capacity for hard work. For the immigrants of Europe, a dream dared and one true. The descendants of African slaves were offered no such welcome or participation. They came from places called the Carolinas and the Virginias, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Arkansas. They came strong, eager, searching. The city rejected them and they fled and settled along the riverbanks and under bridges and shallow ramshackled houses made of sticks and tar paper. They collected rags and wood. They sold the use of their muscles and their bodies. They cleaned houses and washed clothes. They shined shoes and in quiet desperation and vengeful pride they stole and lived in pursuit of their own dream that they could breathe free finally and stand to meet life with the force of dignity and whatever eloquence the heart could call upon. By 1957, the hard-won victories of the European immigrants had solidified the industrial might of America. War had been confronted and won with new energies that used loyalty and patriotism as its fuel. Life was rich, full, and flourishing. The Milwaukee Braves won the World Series and the hot winds of change that would make the 60s a turbulent, racing, dangerous, and provocative decade had not yet begun to blow full. From Act One, the scene with uh, Troy and Rose and Troy's friend Bono. I'll pick it up where Rose says, there's a, there's a lot of people don't know they can do no better than they doing now. 
That's just something you got to learn. A lot of folks still shop at Bella. Troy, ain't nothing wrong with shopping at Bella. She got fresh food. I ain't said nothing about if she got fresh food. See, I'm talking about what she charged. She charged 10 cents more than A&P. A&P ain't never done nothing for me. So I spend my money where I'm treated right. So I go down to Bella, say I need a loaf of bread, I pay you on Friday, she give it to me. Now, what sense that make when I got money to go and spend it somewhere else and ignore the person who's done right by me? See, that ain't in the Bible. So we ain't talking about what's in the Bible. See, what sense it makes to shop there when she overcharged? Well, you shop where you want to. See, I do my shopping where people have been good to me. Yeah, well, I don't think it's right for her to overcharge. That's all I was saying. Bonus. Hey, look here, I got to get on. Lucille gonna be waiting, raising all kind of hair. Say, where you going, nigga? Hey, we ain't finished this paint. Come on, finish this paint. Say, well, hell, I am. If you ever turn the bottle loose, Troy. The only thing I say about that MP is I'm glad Corey got that job down there. See, help him take care of his school clothes and things. Gabe them moved out, and things getting tight around here. See, he got that job. He can start to look out for himself. Rose. Corey done went and got recruited by a college football team. I told that boy about that football stuff. See, the white man ain't gonna let him get in the way with that football. So I told him that when he first come to me with it. See, now, you telling me he done went and got more tied up in it? See, he ought to go and get recruited in how to fix cars or somewhere he can make a living. Well, he ain't talking about making no living playing football. That's just something the boys in school do. So they, they, they're going to send a recruiter around to talk to you. He'll tell you he, he ain't talking about making no living playing football. It's an honor to be recruited. Well, it ain't going to get him nowhere. He said, Bono will tell you that. Well, if he be like you in the sports, he's going to be all right. There ain't but two men ever played baseball as good as you. That's Babe Ruth and Josh Gibson. Them the only two men ever hear more home runs than you. Say, well, what did it ever get me? Say, I ain't got a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. Times have changed since you was playing baseball, Troy. That was before the war. Times have changed a lot since then. How the hell they done change? Well, they got lots of colored boys playing ball now, baseball and football. Well, you're right about that, Rose. Times have changed, Troy. You just come along too early. There ought not never been no time called too early. Now, now you take that fella. What's that fella they had playing right field for the Yankees back then? You know who I'm talking about, Bono. used to play right field for the Yankees. Selkirk, that's it. <coughs> Selkirk, man batting 269, understand? 269. Now, what kind of sense that make? So I was batting 432 with 37 home runs. Man batting 269 and playing right field for the Yankees. So I saw Josh Gibson's daughter yesterday. And she walking around with raggedy shoes on her feet. Now, I bet you Selkirk's daughter ain't walking around with raggedy shoes on her feet. I bet you that. Well, they got a lot of colored ball players now. Jackie Robinson was the first. Folks had to wait for Jackie Robinson. I done seen a hundred niggas play baseball better than Jackie Robinson. Hell, I know some teams Jackie Robinson couldn't even make. <laughs> hey, what you talking about, Jackie Robinson, man? Jackie Robinson wasn't nobody. I'm talking about if you could play ball, then they ought to let you play. Don't care what color you were. Come telling me I come along too early. If you could play, they ought to let you play. Troy takes a long drink from the bottle. Rose, you're going to drink yourself to death. You don't need to be drinking like that. Uh, death ain't nothing. I done seen him. Yeah, nothing wrestle with him. You can't tell me nothing about death. Yeah, death ain't nothing but a fastball on the outside corner. Yeah, and you know what I do to that. Look here, Bone, in my line. 
See, you can one of them fastballs about waist high just over the outside corner of the plate where you can get the meat of the bat on it and good God, see, you can kiss it goodbye. Now am I lying? Nah, you tell the truth there, yeah, I seen you do it. If I'm lying, that 450 feet was a lie. See, that's all death is to me. See, a fastball on the outside corner. See, I don't know why you want to get on talking about death. See, ain't nothing wrong with talking about death. That's part of life. See, everybody gonna die. See, you gonna die, I'm gonna die, Bono gonna die, hell, we all gonna die. But you ain't gotta talk about it, I don't like to talk about it. Well, you the one brought it up. Me and Bono was talking about baseball. And you tell me I'm gonna drink myself to death. Ain't that right, Bono? Now, you know I don't drink this, but one night out the week. Say, that's Friday night. Say, I'm gonna drink just enough to where I can handle it. Say, then I cut it loose, I leave it alone. So don't you worry about me drinking myself to death, see? Cause I ain't worried about that. I done seen him. I done wrestled with him. Look at that, Bono. I looked up one day and death was marching straight at me. Like soldiers on parade, the army of death was marching straight at me. The middle of July, 1941. See, it got real cold, just like it'd be winter. See, seemed like death himself reached out and touched me on the shoulder. See, he touched me just like I touched you. So I got cold as ice, and death standing there, grinning at me. Troy, why don't you hush that talk? I say, what you want, Mr. Death? You be wanting me? You done brought your army to be getting me? See, I looked in their knives. I wasn't fair nothing. See, I was ready to tangle, just like I'm ready to tangle now. The Bible say be ever vigilant. See, that's why I don't get but so drunk. See, I got to keep watch. <laughs> Death standing there, staring at me, carrying that sickle in his hand. Finally, he say, you want bound over for another year? See, just like that. You want bound over for another year? I told him, bound over here, let's settle this now. See, it seemed like he kind of fell back when I said that. See, and all the cold went out of me and I reached down and grabbed that sickle and threw it just as far as I can throw it. See, and me and him commenced to wrestling. Hey, we wrestled for three days and three nights. I can't say where I got the strength from, but every time it seemed like he was going to get the best of me, I reached way deep down inside myself and find the strength to do him one better. Every time Troy tell that story, he find different ways to tell it, different things to make up about it. So I ain't making up nothing. I'm telling you the facts of what happened. I wrestled with death for three days and three nights, and I'm standing here to tell you about it. So all right, at the end of the third night, we don't weaken each other to where we can't hardly move. Death stood up, throwed on his robe. He had a white robe with a hood on it. See, he <laughs> throwed on that robe and went off to look for his sickles. Say, I'll be back. See, just like that. I'll be back. <laughs> I told him, say, yeah, but you're going to have to find me. Yeah, I, I wasn't no fool. <laughs> I wasn't going looking for him. <laughs> See, death ain't nothing to play with. See, I know he's going to get me. I know I got to join his army, his camp followers, but as long as I keep up my strength and see him coming, see, as long as I keep up my vigilance, see, he gonna have to fight to get me because I ain't going easy. Say, uh, look here, since you got to keep up your vigilance, uh, let me have the bottle. <laughs> uh, later on, uh, thank you.
Later on, Act One, uh, scene between Corey, Troy's 17-year-old son, and uh, Troy, when Corey, uh, Corey, get your butt out here, boy. You just now coming in here from leaving this morning? Yeah, I had to go to football practice. Yeah, or what? Yes, sir. I ain't but two seconds off, you know way. The garbage sitting in there overflowing. You ain't done none of your chores. And you come in here talking about, yeah. Well, I was just getting ready to do my chores now, Pop. Your first chore is to help me with this fence on Saturday. See, everything else come after that. Yeah, now get that saw and cut them boards. Corey takes the saw, begins to saw the board. Say, hey, Pop, why don't you buy a TV? Yeah, what do I want with a TV? Well, what do I want one of them for? Well, everybody got one, Earl, babe, bro. Jesse, I ain't asked you who had one. I said, what I want with one? <laughs> so you can watch it. Okay? They got lots of things on TVs, baseball games and everything. You could, we could watch the World Series. Oh, yeah. How much does TV cost? I don't know. They got them on sale for about $200. $200, huh? Yeah, that ain't that much pop. No, it's just $200. See that roof you got over your head at night? Let me tell you something about that roof. It's been over 10 years since that roof was last tar. See now, the snow come this winter and sit up there on that roof like it is, and it's going to seep inside. It's just going to be a little bit. Ain't hardly going to notice it. Then the next thing you know, you're going to be leaking all over the whole house. Then the wood going to rot from all that water, and you're going to need a whole new roof. Now, how much do you think it costs to get that roof tar? I don't know. $264, cash money. See, now while you think about a TV, I got to be thinking about the roof and whatever else go wrong around here. Now, if you had $200, what would you do? Fix the roof or buy a TV? I'd buy a TV. <laughs> then, then when the roof started to leak when it needed fixing, I'd fix it. Hey, where are you gonna get the money from? You know, spend it for your TV. You gonna sit up and watch the water run all over your brand new TV. Oh, Pop, you got money. I know you do. Where I got it at, huh? You got it in the bank. You want to see my bank book? You want to see that $73.22 I got sitting up in there? Well, you ain't got to pay for it all at one time. See, you, you can put a down payment on and just carry it home with you. Well, not me. I ain't going to owe nobody nothing if I could help it. Miss a payment, and they come and snatch it right out your house. Then what you got? See? Now, as soon as I get $200 clear, I'll buy a TV right now. As soon as I get $264, see, I'm going to have that roof tarred. Oh, Pop, you go on, get your $100 and buy one if you want to. I got better things to do with my money. I can't get no $200. I ain't never seen $200. So I tell you what, see, you get $100 and I'll put the other $100 with it. All right, I'm going to show you. Well, you're going to show me how you're going to cut them boards right now. Corey begins cutting the boards. Pirates one a day, that makes five in a row. I ain't thinking about no pirates. You got an all-white team. Got that boy, that, uh, that Puerto Rican boy, Clemente. They don't even half play him. See, that boy could be something if they give him a chance. Play him one day and send him on the bench the next. Well, he gets lots of chances to play. Now, I'm talking about playing regular, playing every day so you get your timing. See, that's what I'm talking about. They got some white guys on the team they don't play every day. You, you can't play everybody at the same time. If they got a white fella sitting on the bench, you can bet your last dollar he can't play. The color guy got to be twice as good before you can get on the team. See, that's why I don't want you getting all tied up in them sports. See, man on the team and what to get him. 
So you got color on the team and don't use them. Same as not having All them teams the same. The Braves got Hank Aaron and West Covington. Hank Aaron had two home runs today. That makes 43. Hank Aaron ain't nobody. See, that's what you're supposed to do. See, that's how you're supposed to play the game. See, ain't nothing to it. Just a matter of timing, getting the right follow-through. Yeah, I can hit 43 home runs right now. Not off no major league pitching, you couldn't. Uh, we had better pitching in the Negro Leagues. See, I hit seven home runs off Satchel Page. You can't get no better than that. Sandy Koufax, he's leading the league in, in strikeouts. I ain't thinking about no Sandy Koufax. You got Warren Spahn and Lou Burdett. I, I bet you can't hit no home runs off Warren Spahn. See, I'm through with it now. You go on and cut them boards. Your mama tell me you done got recruited by a college football team. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Coach Zellman said the recruiter going to be coming by to talk to you, get you to sign a permission paper. I thought you were supposed to be working down there at the A&P. Ain't you supposed to be working down there after school? Uh, Mr. Tewicki said he's going to hold my job for me till after the football season. Say, start next week, I can work weekend. I thought we had an understanding about this football stuff. You're supposed to keep up with your chores and hold that job down at the A&P. Ain't been around here all day on a Saturday. Ain't none of your chores done. And now you're telling me you don't quit your job. I'm going to be working weekends. Nah, you're damn right you are. And ain't no need for nobody coming around here talking to me about signing nothing. Say, hey, Pop, you can't do that. He's coming all the way from North Carolina. I don't care where he's coming from. The white man ain't going to let you get nowhere with that football no way. So you go on and get your book learning so you can work yourself up in the AMP or learn how to fix cars or build houses or something. So get you a trade. See? That way you have something can't nobody take away from you. So you go on and learn how to put your hands to some good use besides hauling people's garbage. I, I get good grades, Pop. That's why the recruiter want to talk to you, see. You, you got to keep up your grades to get recruited. See, this way I'll be going to college and I'll get a chance. First, you're going to get your butt down there to the A&P and get your job back. Mr. Stawicki already hired somebody else because I told him I was playing football. You're a bigger fool than I thought to let somebody take away your job so you can play some football. Where are you going to get your money to take out your girlfriend and whatnot? See, what kind of foolishness is that to let somebody take away your job? So I'm still going to be working weekends. Nah, nah, you getting your butt out of here and finding you another job. Come on, Pop, I got to practice. I, I can't work after school and play football, too. The team needs me. That's what Coach Zellman say. I don't care what nobody else say. I'm the boss around here. You understand? I'm the boss. I do the only thing what count. Come on, Pop. I asked you, did you understand? Yeah. What? Yes, sir. You go on down to the A&P and see if you get your job back. If you can't do both, see, then you quit the football team. See, you got to take the crookeds with the straights. Yes, sir. Can I ask you a question? What the hell you want to ask me? Mr. Stawicki, the one you got the questions for. How come you ain't never liked me? Like you? Who in the hell say I got to like you? What law is there say I got to like you? I'm going to stand up in my face and ask a damn fool-ass question like that. Talking about liking somebody. Come here when I talk to you, boy. Straighten up, goddammit. I asked you a question. What law is there say I got to like you? None. Well, all right then. Don't you eat every day? Answer me when I talk to you. Don't you eat every day? Yeah. Nigga, as long as you're in my house, you put a sir on the end of it when you talk to me. 
Yes, sir. You eat every day. Yes, sir. You got a roof over your head. Yes, sir. You got clothes on your back. Yes, sir. Why do you think that is? Because of you? Oh, hell, I know it's because of me, but why do you think that is? Because you like me? <laughs> Say, like you. See, I go out here every morning, bust my butt, putting up with them crackers every day, because I like you. You're the biggest fool I ever seen. <laughs> it is my job. It is my responsibility. So you understand that? A man got to take care of his family. You live in my house, sleep your behind on my bedclothes, fill your belly with my food, because you're my son. You're my flesh and blood, not because I like you, because it's my duty to take care of you. I owe a responsibility to you. Then, now let's get this straight right here before we go along any further. See, I ain't got to like you. Mr. Rand don't give me my money come payday because he like me. See, he give me because he owe me. See, I didn't give you everything I had to give you. See, I gave you your life. Me and your mama worked that out between us. And liking your black ass wasn't part of the bargain. So don't you try and go through life worrying about if somebody like you or not. You best be making sure they do right by you. You understand what I'm saying, boy? Yes, sir. Then get the hell out of my face and get on down to the AMP. Corey exits. Thank you. Thank you. I want to I go now, uh, while I have the time, to uh, read from Two Trains Running. Uh, I'm gonna, the, the play takes place in a restaurant in Pittsburgh in the year 1969. Memphis is the owner of the restaurant. Uh, Holloway is uh, a regular in the restaurant, and this is the entrance of a uh, character uh, named Sterling, who has uh, just got out of the penitentiary uh, about three or four days before, and he comes into the restaurant. Uh, and when he comes in, Memphis calls Teresa, the waitress who is in the back. Teresa! What? What you mean, what? You see the man sitting there talking about what? Wait on him. That's what you're here for. I was trying to clean the chicken. The man won't eat now. He ain't thinking about you cleaning no chicken. We ain't got no chicken and we ain't got no meatloaf and we ain't got no hamburger either. We just got beans and cornbread. You got some hamburger back there. It's all frozen. Well, take it out the freezer. Thaw it out. Don't tell a man you ain't got none. Tell him you forgot to thaw it out. You want some beans? Sterling. That's all you got is beans? So I don't want no beans. I've been eating beans for five years. <laughs> you got a great big sign out there saying, restaurant, you ain't got no food. Where your menu? She got a menu. What's what that step there? Meatloaf with greens and mashed potatoes. Give me some meatloaf, some collard greens. You got all that sign out there saying, homestyle cooking. Where the food at? You, you got to come back, so I ain't went shopping yet. Yeah. She has some chicken in a minute. Reese, go on back there and get on that chicken. You been back there for a half hour, I ain't got the grease in the pan. 
She'll fry you up some chicken in a minute, man. She got the rice on. I told you, ain't but half a box of rice. Well, cook that up then. That's better than nothing. You ought to put a sign up there that say, gone shopping. <laughs> say, baby, give me a cup of coffee. Hey, go on, get him some coffee and get on back to find up that chicken before somebody else get in here. Risa, you want some cream? I like it black. Oh, I know you. I know who you are. You Rodney's sister. What happened? Where you get them hips from? You used to be a little skinny old thing. You don't remember me? Sterling Johnson. Used to be with Rodney all the time. You don't remember me? That's all right. I remember you. Recent, get on back there and get to work. You ain't got time to be standing around talking. There's an old friend of mine. I know her before you did. Her name is Clarissa Smith. She got a brother named Rodney. I don't care how long you know her. She's working now. She can't be standing around talking. She got things to do. Say, baby, if you get fired, say, I can't take care of you. I'm trying to find a job myself. I just got out of the penitentiary. I ain't worried about getting fired. Yeah. Where Rodney stand? I kind of got out of touch with him. He moved to Cleveland. He said he had to get out of Pittsburgh before he killed somebody. Uh, me and him had some fun times together. You remember I used to come up the house and eat all the time? That was you that was doing the cooking. Rodney said, come on, man, my sister got something to eat. And we used to come up there, you used to be skinny. I wasn't all that skinny. I don't know how skinny you were, but you sure grown up now. Say, what's your phone number? I ain't got none. Well, what's the address? If I can't walk, I'll crawl up there. Risa, get on back there and get that chicken fried up so you can go get Wesley's pie before he be over here. I'm frying it. Seems like to me, if you come to work all the time, can't talk to nobody, and I don't know who wants that job. It might be in the school. Somebody always telling you what to do. Hey, anybody know where I can get a job? Holloway. What kind of job you looking for? Any kind. I can do anything. Well, go up and see Hendricks. He got a construction company. Yeah, that's who I was working for. So he helped me get out of penitentiary. I worked for him one week, and he laid me off. He ain't had enough business to keep me working. I want to go on over to Steel Mill. Big, strong boy like you, if you ain't scared of work, they got work over there. That's what Hendricks told me. So I went over to JNL Steel, and they told me I got to join the union for I work. And when I'm in the union, they told me I got to be working before I join the union. They told me to go back to the steel mill, and they put me on a waiting list. I went and asked my landlady if I'm put her on a waiting list. She told me if I didn't give her $12 by Friday, I could wait on the street. Well, you can go up to Boykin and see if he needs somebody. You know Boykin's up on Heron Avenue, we got that junkyard. He always complaining he can't keep nobody. It's probably because he don't pay nothing, but you can go up there and see him. I ain't got nothing to lose. See, I'll go up there. Thanks. Anybody want to buy a watch? I carried it up to the pawn shop. He didn't want it either. See, got 17 jewels. See, that's what it say right there. I don't know what kind of jewels they are. They don't tell you that part. It's liable to be anything. You open it up, it's liable to be diamonds and rubies. <laughs> so I don't know. I started to do that, but I didn't know if I could put it back together. If you take something apart, you should be able to put it back together, man. 17 jewels. I can't get $5 for it. $3? I said, all right, I'm going to keep it. Now, I'm going to keep it till it stops shining. Whenever you see me, I'm going to have on this watch. Across the street from this restaurant is a funeral home, and there's a man named Prophet Samuel who's laid out for burial, and the people are lined up around the block to see Prophet Samuel. So Sterling looks out the window and says, they got so many people lined up across the street, I thought it was a surplus food line. 
See, I'm going to go and get in line with everybody else. See, get my luck changed. Now, you believe in luck? So I was born with it. So I was born with seven cents. My mama swallowed a nickel and two pennies, and I come out with the nickel in one hand and the two pennies in the other. See, they say I was born with luck, but they didn't say what kind. So I believe it was bad luck. What you think? Say, give me another cup of coffee. The Holloway. You've you been over there to see Prophet Samuel? Yeah, I done seen him. I was over there talking to one man. He said, if you rub his head, you get good luck. Then one man found $20 on the sidewalk on the way out. He said, I'm going over there. It might go through the line twice, have a double look. See, that might not even be enough the way things is going. They might have to go through three times. Holloway. Yeah. Hey, nigga lining up over there to rub Prophet Samuel's head because they think that's going to make their hand itch and they're going to get some money. See, they don't know to go see Aunt Esther. See, Aunt Esther give you more than money. She make you right with yourself, and you ain't got to go far. She live at 1839 Wiley, in the back. Go up there, you see a red door. They go up there and knock on that. See, because Aunt Esther got a power because she got an understanding. Anybody living long as she did is bound to have an understanding. You think she helped me find a job? I mean, I want to open me up a nightclub. Say, whatever your problem is, it don't make no difference to Aunt Esther. She can help you with anything. Where she live at? What's the address? Say, 1839 Wiley, in the back. Knock on the red door. So you can't miss it. Don't care who answer. Just say you come to see Aunt Esther. You ain't got to tell them what you want to see about it. Just say, I come to see Aunt Esther. You got to pay her, though. And she won't take no money herself. She'll tell you to go down and throw it in the river. Say it'll come back to her. She must be telling the truth because she don't want for nothing. She got some people up there to take care of, and they don't want for nothing either. Memphis, ask her how old she is while you up there. Well, she'll tell you. And she don't try to hide it, and she don't care if you believe or not. She's 322 years old. <laughs> she'll tell you. Well, how the hell is somebody going to live to be 322 years old, nigga? You talk like a fool. Sterling, well, they live that long in the Bible. I ain't surprised to hear that. Do she look like she come out the Bible? Well, you got to go see what she looked like for herself. See, I'm just telling you that she's 322 years old. Now, you go up there and see her. I go up to see her every once in a while, get my soul washed. She don't do nothing but lay her hands on your head, but it's a feeling like you ain't never had before. Then everything in your life just get real calm and peaceful. Memphis. I'd rather believe if I rub Prophet Samuel's head, I'd get rich. See, that makes more sense to me than talking about somebody being 322 years old. She look like she's 500. You, you'd be surprised when she says she ain't but 322. <laughs> don't ask me how she lived that long. See, I don't know. It looked like they're scared of her. Every time he come around her, he just get on up and get away. Say, ask Wes about her. Wes is the undertaker. Ask Wes about her. Did he tell you? He, he, be, he done went up there to see her. He been waiting to bear her ever since he saw her. <laughs> he even told the people in the house that he'd do it for free. Uh, I ain't seen her change nobody's luck. Yeah, every nigga I know got bad luck. If it was as easy as that, hell, we'd all be rich. See? And there you go talking about being rich. I ain't said nothing about being rich. I'm talking about getting your luck changed. See, you go up there with the wrong attitude and, and liable to come out with worse luck than you had before. So that's what the problem is now. Aunt Esther don't buy into that. She don't make people rich. You go up there talking about you want to get rich and she won't have nothing to do with you. She sing you to see Prophet Samuel. And you see how far that'll get you. <laughs> see, now, most people don't know Prophet Samuel wants to see Aunt Esther. 
Yeah, he wasn't always a prophet. He started out, he was a reverend. Had him a truck. And he'd stand on the back of that truck, had him a loudspeaker, and he'd go out and preach the word of the gospel and sell barbecue. You know, make him a little money on the side. <laughs> but everybody knew Reverend Samuels. See, he even went out to where the white folks live and tried to preach to them. They seen him with that truck and thought he'd come out there to steal their furniture. <laughs> they called the police on him. Many that time, see, he'd go on, pay his $50 fine for preaching without a permit, and go right on back out there. Oh, they, they had him in big trouble one time. See, he had all his money going to the church, and they arrested him for income tax evasion. Yeah, that's when he went to see Aunt Esther. He walked in there a reverend, and he walked out a prophet. Now, I don't know what she told him, but he went down to see the mayor. Say, if they arrested him for income tax evasion, they had to arrest Mellon too. Said God was going to send a sign. The next day, the stock market fell so fast, they had to close it up early. Mellon called the mayor and told him, drop the charges. <laughs> the next day, the stock market went right on back up there, <laughs> except for Gulf Oil, which Mellon owned. That went higher than it ever went before. Yeah, Mellon was tickled pink. He sent Prophet Samuel a $500 donation in a brochure advertising his banking services. He had his picture taken with him and everything. See, that's when Prophet Samuel went big. Police didn't bother him no more. Wouldn't even give him a parking ticket. If he hadn't started walking around in robes and going barefoot and whatnot, he ain't no telling how big he would have gotten. See, a lot of people don't like him wearing them robes, baptizing people in the river and all that kind of stuff. You know, that's the damnest thing I ever heard of. Well, don't take my word for it. See, go on up there and see for yourself. Knock on the door. You don't have to be scared. Memphis, I ain't scared. What I got to be scared of? I just don't believe in all that stuff. Ask Wes when you see him. Say, ask anybody who's been up there. Sterling, you can ask me when I come back. 1839 Wiley, in the back. You go up there and knock on the red door. See, just come, just say you come to see Aunt Esther. You go up there and don't go up there and tell you want to get rich. Just tell her you ain't right with yourself and she'll straighten you out. Here, Risa, cook me up some of that chicken. Say, I'll be back. I want to eat some of what you've been eating and see if I can get nice and healthy too. And Sterling exits. Thank you. The scene the next day uh, between uh, Memphis and uh, Holloway. And uh, Memphis. Say, hey, hey, Holloway, you know what I just found out? You know who that boy is, that Sterling boy? I was talking to Hendrix. Say, that's that boy robbed that bank and was out spending the money 10 minutes later. You remember that? Hendricks give him a job to help him get out, and the boy don't want to work. See, Hendricks don't know. He don't know like I know. See, he's trying to help him, but that boy don't want to work. It ain't that he don't want to work. He said Hendricks ain't had no job for him. And if he did, and he don't want to haul no bricks on a construction site for $3 an hour, so that ain't going to help him. What are you going to do with $25 a day? That'd be 25 more than he got now. His granddaddy used to work for $3 a day. See, he's doing good. No, I ain't talking about that. Hell, his great-granddaddy used to work for nothing as far as that go. See? I'm talking about he can make two or $300 a day gambling if he get lucky. If he don't, somebody else will get it. See, that's all you got around here, niggas with somebody else's money in their pocket. 
See? And they don't do nothing but trade it off on one another. Say, I got it today, and you got it tomorrow. Until sooner or later, as sure as the sunshine, somebody going to take it and give it to the white man. The money go from you to me to you, and then bingo, it's gone. From him to you to me, then bingo, it's gone. Give it to the white man. Pay your rent. Pay your telephone. Buy your groceries. See the doctor. Bingo. It's gone. Just circulate it around till it find that hole and bingo. Yeah, like trying to haul sand in a bucket with a hole. Every time you get where you're going, the bucket empty. Yeah, that's why that $25 day ain't going to make do him no good. See, a nigga with $500 in his pocket around here is a big man. But you go out there where they at. Yeah, you go out there to Squirrel Hill. Yeah, they walking around there with $5,000 in their pocket trying to figure out how to make it into $500,000. Well, ain't nothing wrong with saving your money and doing like they do. These niggas just don't want to work. That boy don't want to work. He lazy. People kill me talking about niggas who lazy. Niggas is the most hard-working people in the world. Worked 300 years for free and didn't take no lunch hour. <laughs> now, all of a sudden, niggas are lazy. All of a don't know how to work. All of a sudden, when they got to pay niggas, ain't no work for them to do. See, if it wasn't for you, the white man would be poor. Every little bit he got, he got standing on top of you. That's why he could reach so high. He give you $3 an hour for six months, and he got him a railroad for the next 100 years. See, and all you got is six months worth of $3 an hour. That's what's wrong Memphis. That's what's wrong with niggas today. They can't see out from under their nose. They don't know how they got from here to there. Holloway, it's simple mathematics. See, ain't no money in niggas working. Look out there on the street. If there was some money in it, if the white man could figure out, out a way to make some money by putting niggas to work, yeah, we'd all be working. He ain't building no more railroads. He got them. He ain't building no more highways. So somebody had already stuck the telephone poles in the ground. See, that's been done already. The white man ain't stacking no more niggas. You know, you know what I mean by stacking niggas, don't you? Well, see, here's how that go. If you ain't got nothing, you can go out here and get you a nigger. See, then you got something, see? You got one nigger. Now, if that one nigger get out there and plant something, see, get something out the ground, even if it ain't nothing but a bushel of potatoes, then you got one nigger and one bushel of potatoes. See, then you take that bushel of potatoes and go on and get you another nigger. See, then you got two niggers. See, put them to work, and you got two niggers and two bushel of potatoes. See? Now you can go buy two more niggas, see? That's how you step a nigga on top of a nigga. Then the white folks got the stacking, and I'm talking about they stacked up some niggas. Stacked up close to 50 million niggas. If you stack them on top of one another, they make six or seven circles around the moon. I always said I was going to get me a dartboard and put Eli Whitney's picture on one side and a bow weaver on the other. See? <laughs> Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin and put niggas to work, and the bow weaver come along and put them out of work. Eli Whitney and the bow weaver, the cause of all the problems that the colored man is having now. Man invented the cotton gin, and they went over to Africa and couldn't find enough niggas. They look at a boat didn't sink with all the niggas they had stacked up there. See, it take them two extra months to get here because they ride so low in the water. Yeah, they couldn't find enough work for you back then. So now that they got to pay you, they can't find you none. See, if this was a different time, there wouldn't be nobody out there in the street. They'd all be in the cotton fields. I want to jump now to... <laughs> okay.
I'm gonna pick up this scene here. This is, is uh, The Undertaker, West, and uh, Sterling, who's still looking, who goes through the whole play looking for a job, uh, asks Mr. West for a job. And then that goes into uh, uh, picking up on Esther, uh, Sterling. Uh, say, Mr. West, I, I was thinking, you know, I ain't never driven me no Cadillac. See, I figure everybody's supposed to drive a Cadillac at least once before they die. See, man got seven Cadillacs, needs somebody to drive them, right? And we should see me drive, see? Can't nobody be me drive. I drove a getaway car one time. <laughs> we got away too. See, the cops was about three feet behind us, and I tried to go around the block in circles to cross them up to see if they could make all them turns like I could. I must have went around four or five times. They kept right on us, right behind us, about three feet. So I ain't never seen nothing like it. So I was scared to try them on a straightway because we had an old 52 Ford, and I figured they outrun that. So I just put on the brakes. I figured if they didn't hit us too hard, but just hard enough to bust up their radiator, then we might be able to get away. See, I tried that, and sure enough, they ran right into us, smashed up till they couldn't move. So I wanted to drive around the block and wave at him, but Rodney said, don't do that. So we just went ahead and got away. So do you need any drivers? No, I, I got everybody I need. Well, if you ever need anybody, just let me know, okay? So I done been in the penitentiary, so I tell you that up front. So I don't want to go back. See, I figure everybody should work at what they like to do. So I asked myself, I said, Sterling, what you like to do? And the closest I could come up with was I like to drive a Cadillac. So if you ever need anybody, think of me, okay? Well, do you have to wash the cars as you drive them? I don't want to wash them without driving them, but if I could wash them seven at a time every day for about $5, $5 a piece, yeah, I might do that. So how long you reckon it take to do that? So I don't reckon it take more than three hours. If, if you do a good job, that is, yeah, I could do that for you. He said, no, I got somebody to wash my cars. Yeah, I know. Every time I see them, they be clean, except for the grill. See, I could clean the grill better than that. See, you ought to tell them to get a little brush and scrub in them little spots with it. It won't hurt the chrome none. Mr. Lewis taught me how to do that. If I ever need anybody, I'll let you know. Holloway. Did you go up there to see Aunt Esther? Yeah, I went up there. Knocked on the door, must have knocked on the door for about five minutes, and this man answered, a big man, must be about seven feet tall. He answered, and he told me Aunt Esther was sick. Oh, yeah. Well, she gets sick every once in a while. As you can imagine, somebody 322 years old is bound to get sick once in a while. I hear tell she don't see too good either. See? Now you give her a chance to get her rested, and then you go on back up there to see her, see? I'm going up there to see her myself. Say, what's been up there? Say, he don't like to tell nobody, but he went up there. Well, I don't care who knows here. Yeah, yeah, I've been up there. Memphis, you been up there, Wes? Yeah, I went up there and saw her. I didn't take it no more than a hundred or so. They tell him when that was. Tell him how long that's been. Been 27 years. That don't mean she's still alive. I ain't seen her in 27 years and she looked like she was half dead then. I can't imagine what she looked like now. She looked like she looked then. She wasn't but 290 something then. I don't reckon them 27 years make that much difference to her. The oldest person I buried was Miss Sarah Degree. And she was 112. I don't think nobody can live too much longer than that. Well, you can go on back up there and see her. She's still there. What did you go up there for, Wes? I went up there to see if my wife was in heaven. See, I had them buried a whole lot of people, but she's the first one I ever wondered about. See, people don't understand about death. 
See, but if you ever hear one of them coughing sounds, you know they ain't nothing like it. That coughing gets to talking, and you know that this here, what we call life, ain't nothing. You can blow it away with a blink of an eye. See, but death, you can't blow away death. See, it lasts forever. See, I don't understand about it till my wife died. See? Then when she died, I come to understand it. See, you can live to be 150, and you'll never have a greater moment than when you breathe your last breath. Ain't nothing you can do in life compared to it. See, right then you done done something. You become a part of everything that come before. See, and that's a great thing. See, ain't nothing you can do in life compared to that. So I heard about Aunt Esther, and I went up to see if my wife was in heaven. I figured if anybody knew she would. What'd she tell you? She told me to take and throw $20 in the river and come back and see her. So I thought she was crazy to tell you the truth. So I didn't pay her no mind. I knew she was old, but I figured she done got too old. Well, Holloway, that's what your problem is. See, you don't want to do nothing for yourself. You want somebody else to do it for you. Aunt Esther don't work that way. She said you got to pull your part of the load. See, but you don't want to do that. See, that's why you don't know. And it didn't cost you but $20. I wasn't going to throw my money in the river, nigga. That's why you don't know. You don't know what she might have happened if you did that. If you had gone back up there, then she might have told you. See, I offered to give her the $20 just for a time, but she wouldn't take it. Told me to throw it in the river. See, I'd rather see her with it than see it at the bottom of the river. I just wasn't going to do that with my money. And that's why you don't know. If it takes throwing my money in the river to find out, I ain't never going to know. <laughs> well, what you go up to see her about, Holloway? What happened when you threw your $20 in? Yeah, I went up to see her because I wanted to kill my grandfather. See, I went up there and got that feeling off of me. I had to throw $20 every week for a month. But I got it off me. He died from natural causes. That's where he buried him. He died in his sleep. That's why I know it worked, because he died a natural death. Well, what you want to kill your grandfather for? Now you're getting in my business. Ask where if he ain't died a natural death. See, that's all you got to know. Well, I don't care nothing about your business. You, you the one who brought it up. I didn't know you had a grandfather. Had two of them. One on my mother's side and one on my father's side. Yeah, one of them I ain't never knew. The other one wasn't no word for nobody. That was the worst Negro I ever known. He think if it wasn't for white people, there wouldn't be no daylight. If you let him tell it, God was a white man at a big plantation in the sky and sat around drinking mint juleps and smoking Havana cigars. He couldn't wait to get up to heaven to pick cotton. If he overheard, you might want to go down and get you some extra meat out of the white man's smokehouse. He'd run and tell. He see you put a rabbit in your sack to weigh up with the cotton. He'd run and tell. White man would give him a couple pounds of bacon. Say, hey, bring that home. My grandmama would throw it out with the garbage. Say, that's the kind of woman she was. So I don't know how she got dialed up with him. She used to curse the day she laid down with him. See, and that rubbed off on me. So I got a little older where I could see what kind of man he was, and I figured if he wanted to go to heaven to pick cotton, I'd help him. <laughs> I got real serious about it. It stayed on me so then nobody wanted to be around me because of that bad energy I was carrying. See, couldn't keep me a woman. Seemed like nothing wouldn't work for me. I went up to see Aunt Esther and got that bad energy off me. And it worked too. Ask Wes. He died in his sleep. Caught pneumonia and laid down and died. They wouldn't let him in the hospital because he didn't have any insurance. And he crawled up in the bed in my grandmother's house and laid there till he died. March 
1952. So can't nobody tell me nothing about Aunt Esther, see? Because I know what she can do for you. There's uh, two, two other speeches I want to read. Uh, I want to, my favorite, this is my favorite speech from uh, Joe Turner's Come and Gone, which uh, I always read in honor of my mother. Uh, and it's Bynum talking to Jeremy, and I'll read that, and I, then I want to jump back for one last little bit from uh, Two Trains Running. Uh, Bynum and Jeremy, Jeremy's a young man, Bynum is sort of the older root worker in the play. Bynum to Jeremy, say, uh, so you and that Maddie Campbell won't get tied up together. Yeah. I, I told her she don't need to be by lonesome, Mr. Bynum, see, don't make no sense for both of us to be by lonesome, so she gonna move in with me. Well, sometimes you got to be where you're supposed to be. Sometimes you can get all mixed up in life and come to the wrong place. Well, that's just what I told her, Mr. Bynum. See, it don't make no sense for it to be all mixed up and lonesome. You may as well come here and be with me. She's a fine woman, too. Got them long legs. Know how to treat a fella, too. Treat you like you want to be treated. Well, you just can't look at it like that. See, you got to look at the whole thing. Now, you take a fella, go out there, grab hold to a woman and think he got something because she's sweet and soft to the touch. All right, touching's part of life. It's in the world like everything else. Touching's nice. It feels good. But you can lay your hand upside a horse or a cat, see, and that feels good too. <laughs> see, what's the difference? See, when you grab hold to a woman, see, you got something there. You got a whole world there. You got a way of life kicking up under your hands. See, that woman can take and make you feel like something. See, I ain't just talking about the way of jumping off in the bed together and rolling around with each other. See, anybody can do that. See, but when you grab hold of that woman and look at the whole thing and see what you got, why well, she can take and make something out of you. See, your mother was a woman. That's enough right there to show you what a woman is, enough to show you what she can do. She made something out of you, taught you converse and all about how to take care of yourself how to see where you're at and where you're going tomorrow, how to look out to see what's coming in the way you're eating and what to do with yourself when you get lonesome. Oh, that's a mighty thing she did, see. But you just can't look at a woman to jump off in the bed with her. That's a foolish thing to ignore a woman like that. Oh, I ain't ignoring her, Mr. Bottom. It's hard to ignore a woman got legs like she got. So, all right, see, let's try it this way. Now, you take a ship. They'd be out there on the water traveling about. You out there on that ship, sailing to and from, see? And then you see some land, just like you see a woman walking down the street. You see that land, and it don't look like nothing but a line out there on the horizon. See, that's all it is when you first see it, a line that cross your path out there on the horizon. See, now, a smart man know when he see that land, it ain't just a line sitting there. He know that if you get off the water to go take a good look by it, there's a whole world there. See, a whole world with everything imaginable under the sun. See, anything you can think of, you can find on that land. Same with a woman. See, a woman is everything a man needs. To a smart man, she water and berries. 
See, and that's all a man needs. That's all he needs to live on. You give me some water and berries, and if there ain't nothing else, I can live a hundred years. See, you, you just like a man looking at the horizon from a ship. You just seeing a part of it. But it's a blessing when you learn to look at a woman and see maybe just a few strands of her hair, the way her cheeks curve, to see in that everything there is out of life to be gotten. See, it's a blessing to see that. You know you've done right and proud by your mother to see that. See, but you got to learn it. See, my telling you ain't going to mean nothing. See, you got to learn how to come to your own time and place with a woman. What about your woman, Mr. Bonds? I, I know you don't have some women. So, oh, I, I got them in memory time. And that lasts longer than any of them ever stayed with me. <laughs> Thank you. One last very short speech of uh, Holloway in Two Trains Running. It's a, it starts the last scene of the plays. They're sitting around, and one of the characters in the play has died, and Holloway. One of the characters in the play has died, and, and the other two characters in the plays have fallen in love with each other. And Holloway says, That's all you got. You got love, and you got death. Death will find you. It's up to you to find love. See, that's where most people fall down at. See, death got room for everybody. They love pick and choose. Now, most people won't admit that. They tell you they love this one and that one, and most don't even love their mother. You can see that by the way they treat her. But they tell you anything, see, but they got to know in their heart. Now, I believe Wes loved his wife, and Bubba Boy loved his woman. And them the only two people I can say found love. The rest of us play at it. That's because love costs. Love got a price to it. Everybody don't want to pay it. They put it on credit. From time it come due, they got it on credit somewhere else. See, that's the way I see the world. That's what I learned all these years. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Uh, he asked me if I would uh, take some questions. I'd be happy to. It's uh, my favorite part of the evening, actually. Yes, sir. I've seen Ma Rainey. I've seen Joseph Okay. How do I feel about Joe Turner's coming on compared to the others? Now, 
If you had asked me that question two months ago, you would have got a different answer than the one you're going to get now. Uh, but it's always been true even when I didn't say it. But I don't mind saying, I don't know why it changes, but I do not mind saying that my favorite play of all the plays I've written is, is Joe Turner's Coming God. So that's the way I feel about it. Someone else. <laughs> why? Uh, I think, for me, the moment in the play uh, where Loomis, Harold Loomis, the, the protagonist, if you will, of the play, tells about his vision of bones rising up out of the water and taking on flesh and marking and, and walking on, onto the uh, land for me was the Africans who had been lost on the Middle Passage and the bones which are today resting at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. It was resurrecting them and marching them up on the land uh, where they can join the rest of us who are up here. And I remember, I recall reading that and I said, okay, I'm ready to die now, you know. It's one of those things where you write and it was like there's nothing else to write. Uh, I did it, and if I died that moment, I would have had a sense of artistic fulfillment because I had had this idea of writing that scene. So I think because that scene is part of the play, and also because of its, its spiritualness, and also because I think the statement that the play made, uh, that Loomis very strongly at the end of the play when he finds a song and slashes his chest with his knife, uh, his redemption it is the redeeming, his severing of the bonds, his his willingness to accept responsibility for his own presence and his own salvation in the world, having rejected the, uh, the blood of Christ, thereby rejecting the idea that salvation comes anywhere from outside of himself. And that is that in black there is no idea that cannot be contained by black life. So it's a combination of all of those things and a very strong statement. The fact that he says Joe Turner is coming God and he's not gonna let anybody bind them up. All those kinds of things for me make it uh, uh, just my favorite. Yes? Okay, uh, the struggle, I'm glad you mentioned that. I've been writing since April 1st, 1965 which is, uh, I don't know, 26 years now, and so behind each one of these plays is all those thousands of poems and stories and things I wrote many, many years ago. Uh, part of my process, and, and when I began writing then as a 20-year-old poet, I, I don't care what anyone says, is, as a 20-year-old poet, you cannot sit at home and write poetry because you don't know anything about life. So you have to go out and engage the world. And my friends at the time were painters, and, and I was not envious of them because they were always trying to get money for paint and get money for canvas. And I felt that my tools were very simple. I can borrow a pencil and write on a napkin and get a piece of paper from anyone. And so I began to write out in bars and restaurants and little snatches of things. I still do it that way. Uh, I, I start, generally I have like an idea of something I want to say. Uh, but I start with a line of dialogue. I have no idea half the time who's speaking or what they're saying. I'll start with the line, and the more dialogue I write, the better I get to know the characters. And, and, and uh, as I go along, for instance, I'm writing uh, 
piano lesson and Bernie says something to Boy Willie and he talks about Sutter failing the will. Well, it was a surprise to me. Uh, I don't know who, and then I go, well, who is Sutter, right? I found out though, see, if you have a character like Holloway, if you keep, if you keep the Bynums and the Holloways in a play, the character that knows everything, then you won't have any problem. Whenever you get stuck, you ask them a question. And the characters, you see, and the characters that know everything, they have to have a way to find out. So they're generally the ones who are asking the questions. And I have learned that if you trust them and simply do not even think about what they're saying, it doesn't matter. They say things like Sutter fell in the world. You just write it down and make it all make sense later. So I use those characters a lot. How long Wes, they're talking about this undertaker, Wes, and his wife died. So how long ago Wes' wife died? Holloway, how, how long? She died uh, 23 years ago, died right after war, about two or three years after that. He buried her herself. So he didn't want nobody else touching her when she was living. He said he didn't want nobody touching her when she was dead. You know, anything you want to know, you ask the character. So, uh, part of my process is then I assemble all these things and, and later try to make sense out of them and sort of plug them into what is my larger, larger artistic agenda, uh, which is uh, answering James Baldwin's call. We call for a profound articulation of the black tradition, which he defined as that field of manners and ritual of intercourse that will sustain a man once he's left his father's house. So I say, okay, that field of manners and ritual of intercourse is what I'm trying to put on stage. And I best learn about that for me through the blues. I discovered this all there. Uh, so I have, a, I, have a, I have an agenda. And once having an artistic agenda, and then the, the painter, Romir Bearden, someone asked him about his work, and he said, I tried to explore in terms of the life I know best those things which are common to all culture. So I say, okay, it's about culture and the commonalities of culture. So using those two things and having a, the larger identity, I take all this material, no matter what it is, and then later I sit down and uh, assemble it. And I really discovered, and well, I, I admire Romare Bearden uh, a lot. He's a collagist. He makes, you know, he pieces things together. And I discover that's part of my process, what I do. And I piece it all together uh, and hopefully to try to make have it make sense in a, in a way that a collage would. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's part of my process. Anyway. Yes. Someone else? Yes. What do you think of the current race relations in our city of New York? I don't live in New York, and I'm not a sociologist, and I normally would, would respond to what I think of race relations because I, I do have some thoughts about that and things to say, but on this night, I do not want to uh, talk about race relations or to talk about the war in the Persian Gulf. I think let's talk about art, literature, poetry. Uh, let's talk about poetry or something, you know? Tonight, tomorrow, it's a different story. Yes. I do not know. Uh, I, they, I, they're all invented, uh, but at the same time, they're all made up out of myself. Uh, so they're all me, and different aspects of my personality, I guess. 
but I, I can't like say, oh, geez, I know a guy like this, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna write uh, Joe, who I, I, some people, I can't do that. So it's just different parts of myself, and I try to uh, invent some other parts. Yes. I'm always optimistic, yes. Uh, I'm one of those kind of people. Uh, we, I think we have some very, well, see, I don't want to get into this. Yes, I, I'm hopeful. What one does is, but my parent, my parents passed along to me was fresh hope. And so I'm in the process of refreshing that I hope to pass it along to my daughter who's going to be 21 years old tomorrow. So, yes. Uh, I, I don't have a musical background. Uh, I don't play an instrument. I uh, don't know any musical terms. I mean, I don't know anything about music. Although I have a very good ear and I'm a good listener and I listen mostly to blues, you know, but other than that, I have no musical background. Uh, I had a friend of mine who was gonna teach me how to play a harmonica one time and it seemed simple, but then we started doing it, you know, and I couldn't get my tongue to go. And, so I, 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 I know. <laughs> someone, yes. Oh, uh, someone. Uh, the difference is, well, you know, I approach them differently in a sense that one is, one is for me, if there's such a thing as, as public art and private art, and you know, the poems are, or private, and they, they're a record of a private journey, if you will. Uh, I, uh, I, I count them as moments of privilege and I count them as gifts, but it's more the kind of, if there's a public and a private, it would be the private. Uh, I, enjoy, I still write poetry, I enjoy, uh, I enjoy it very much. Yes. Lyman, yes. We went through this, uh, the, the question was, in, in uh, Piano Lesson, there's a scene where Boy Willie brings Grace uh, in, into the house. He goes out and he meets this woman, Grace, and he brings her in there. And what was the purpose of the scene? It seemed like it was extra to the play. Uh, it, may, I, it may be extra. I, th I think this is why she's in the play. Her name is Grace. That's important, you see, because you have Avery and you have Maritha, right? So Ave Maria, Grace. You know things like that. So, <laughs> no, seriously. There, you know, there, there are. I, 
I, I honestly can't answer your question except that I'm sure uh, at one time I must have felt that it was necessary. <laughs> Someone else. <laughs> I wait, wait, you could. Yes, go, the ghost ending a piano lesson. Uh, Boy Willie uh, ends up wrestling with the ghost, and uh, the ending a piano lesson. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about it this way. When I wrote Two Trains Running. I called Lloyd Richards and I said, the first words I said to him was, I have an ending to this one. <laughs> Piano lesson. <laughs> ending was very difficult. Uh, thing. We had about five different endings to play, but it, it, it was always the same ending and I simply wanted Boy Willie to demonstrate a willingness to battle with the ghost, with Sutter's ghost, or the ghost of the white man, which is still in black Americans' lives. And he has to be exercised. And I thought that I would have Boy Willie demonstrate simply, not who's going to win this the thing with battling with the supernatural, but his willingness to do battle. Now, in staging that, we had, and there was also the ghost of the yellow dog, uh, which were uh, the, the ghosts of the guys that burned up in a boxcar, uh, et cetera. Uh, they were ideally, I mean, you know, I, I wanted Boy Willie to do it himself, but then we thought, well, maybe we'll have the ghosts come in and, you know, they'll help him with this battle, et cetera, et cetera. And ultimately, Bernice must break her taboo of playing piano and call up the ghost of her mother and her grandmother and all of her ancestors which she has been rejecting. So that's really about the ending of that and she does that and the, it's a very powerful force and Sutter's ghost uh, leaves the house. And that's as clear as I can put it. However, if you ever get an opportunity to see two trains running, we, there's a very definite <laughs> ending. And it's the only possible ending to the play. Yes. Uh, I, I, I don't do any teaching, no. Uh, influences on my work, I have what I call uh, my four Bs, which is uh, Romare Bearden, the artist, the Marty, Imamo uh, Emeli Baraka, uh, the writer, or Jorge Luis Borges, uh, the Argentine short story writer, and uh, the biggest B of all, I guess, is the blues. And I have been variously influenced by them. Uh, and also by the 2000 or some poets that I've written. I have not been per se influenced by playwrights or uh, any writers other than that. that uh, some of the black writers I read, for instance, I read uh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man when, when I was 14. I guess I've been influenced by, I've certainly been inspired by uh, those examples like that. Yes. Uh, I'm going to maintain my wonderful relationship with Lloyd Richards. <laughs> and hopefully, uh, 
with the Yale Repertory Theater, I, w I would certainly would still like to continue uh, for Lloyd and I to continue to work there. And, uh, and if that's possible, then uh, that's what uh, I would like to do. Yes. I, I think I, when I discovered the word breakfast, and I discovered it was two words. I mean, this utter fascination with, with the language. Uh, and I think then I decided I wanted to be a writer. Uh, with my work, what I, what I hope to accomplish is, is what I mentioned earlier to the place, the tradition of uh, black American culture. Uh, to demonstrate its ability to sustain us, that, that, we, that we have a ground that is specific, that is peculiarly ours that we can stand on, which gives us a, a worldview to, to look at the world and to comment on it. Uh, and I'm, I'm just trying to place the world of that culture on stage to demonstrate one its existence and hopefully maybe also point some uh, uh, Directions about which we, uh, toward which we as a people may possibly move. For instance, the uh, in in uh, two trains running, uh, uh, which is the uh, play. There are so many references to death in the play. The Undertaker in the black community is the richest man. Uh, is still true today. Uh, and in the midst of all that, though, in the midst of all this death, you have that which doesn't die, which is Aunt Esther, which is the tradition. And when the people, the characters in the play go to see Aunt Esther, the main thing that she tells them each in a different way is that if you drop the ball, you have to go back and pick it up. If you continue right, if you reach the end zone, it's not going to be a touchdown. You have to have the ball. And I think the black, that we as black Americans need to go back and make the connection that we allowed to be severed when we moved uh, from the south to the north, the great migration starting in 1915. Uh, they, for the most parts, we have allowed the culture that was growing and developing in the southern part of the United States for 200 and some years, uh, which uh, we more or less abandoned that. And so you have a situation where in 1991, these kids do not know who they are because they cannot make the connection with their grandparents and therefore the connection with their political history in America. Yes, sir. Uh, the two trains running is, is uh, we're currently in the, at Seattle Repertory Theater. We opened there uh, January 2nd and we'll be there and then we're going to go to uh, uh, the Old Globe Theater in San Diego. But beyond that, I'm not sure what, what may or may not happen with the play. And I have an idea for, uh, uh, oh, maybe I, maybe I can, uh, <laughs> maybe you can help me. 
I have an idea for, for two plays. You see what I'm, I'm trying to figure out which one I want to write. One of them is, uh, takes place in the 40s in a turpentine camp in Georgia. And, and it's a all, so far, it's an all-male play. Now I say that and once you start writing, I also say that if it doesn't change in the process of writing, then you're not writing deep enough. So it doesn't necessarily have to remain an all-male play or even in a turpentine camp in Georgia. But that's one idea. And the other idea is a play that I call Seven Guitars, and it's about seven guys on stage with guitars uh, who do not play these guitars, incidentally. Uh, but they do a lot of talking about them. And that's a play uh, about, basically about the blues. So I have to decide which one I'm going to write next. So I'm, all those in favor of the blues play. <laughs> OK. I love it. All those in favor of the turpentine camp play in 1940. One of the two I will do. Yes. You've been very kind and a very good audience, and, and thank you so much. Okay. Thanks for listening. For more information on 92nd Street Y and all of our programs, please visit us at 92y.org. This program is copyright 1991 by 92nd Street Y.